Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hi there, Renee here. Are you paying too much for your car, home, life or small business insurance without having your own agent? Do you need someone who you can trust to advise you correctly? Well, insurance agent Chad Johnson is the man you gotta look for. He knows multiple companies who offer these products. Chad Johnson is licensed in Missouri, Illinois, Oklahoma, Kansas, Arkansas and Iowa. Call or text message him at 417-421-2925 for a no obligation quote on any of your insurance needs. Again, that's call or text message Chet Johnson at 417-421-2925. If you'd like to join the FTG family by becoming one of our Patreons, just go find us at patreon.com. We're listed as Fade to Gray Podcast. You can also find a link on our website if you go to fadetograypodcast.com and look under our sponsors tab, you'll find a link to our Patreon page and you'll be able to choose which tier you'd like to sponsor us at. We look forward to seeing how many of you decide to join the FTG family. Thanks, guys. Mark Garza was the drummer for the band Embodiment. He went on to form the band The Famine with other members of Embodiment, and he currently plays drums in the band Constant Seas. This episode is so good that I don't want to waste any more of your time talking. Here he is, Mark Garza. Hey man, what's going on? What's up, man? How are you? I'm doing well. So... We've met before. I, I don't know if you remember that, but we actually met. I used to go to your shows all the time. When you guys would go to Deep Ellum, I would right. go to almost every show that I could. And uh, I, I was a huge, huge embodiment fan. The time that sticks out to me the most was you gave me a copy of your industrial demo that you guys had just done. And Holy uh, cow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I was thrilled that you let me have an early copy of that. And it was like the coolest thing. That was huge, you know, so. <laughs> no, that's that's super cool because I don't I don't think we got but just a couple of handfuls of those. And maybe um, if it was me that gave it to you, I'm betting that I had uh, uh, I probably ha- had the, the, the label version come in my way pretty quick. So I figured I'd give somebody um excuse me somebody uh uh a copy of mine because i thought you know that if i remember correctly it was like an orange cd was it i'm not too sure um i think this one was just like a cdr like a typical uh gray cdr okay Okay, yeah then you're probably right It, it was probably was just our our uh our copy we got from the label that's super cool that you remember that though 
Oh, that's awesome. It was huge. It was, it was a huge deal to me. So, um, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, however many years later, uh, thank you for that. That was, that was great. And of course I went out and bought songs for the living after that, the, the real version. So you didn't right. lose any sales on it. So that's um, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, how did you initially get involved with the guys from embodiment? Um, I guess it started from, uh, uh, just us being friends at school uh, mainly myself and Jason Linquist, who uh, started out as a guitar player that ended up being the bass player. Um, we were pretty close. And uh, uh, I mean, I want to say it was probably our, our sophomore, junior year in high school. And uh, he just noticed me in class one day drawing this big, massive drum set on the back of one of my notebooks or something. And he was, you know, like, what is that? And I just told him, hey, it's my kit. And he was like, are you kidding me? I said, no. Um, and then it just went from there. And then uh, we met Andy. Um, and we're all still friends to this day, by the way. But I met Andy shortly after that. Um, uh, he was going to a different school at the time. And then uh, we all just started this this band that, you know, we kind of all had the common goal of wanting to play heavy music, and that was pretty much it. What was the first uh, few songs that you guys wrote like? Oh, there, there were the most unhinged death metal, <laughs> like that you could ever imagine. Like, you know, you listen to to to, to metal these days, um, and it's very um, processed, very uh, predictable to the grid, fast and technical, of course, but it's it's very. Um, you kind of predict what's going to sound like back then, man, we just, it sounded like almost like gutter punk, like garbage metal. It was so, so hardcore, but it was really cool though. It was, you know, cause we didn't have any real sense of what we were doing being, but Andy was probably 14 at the time. Oh my gosh. Maybe 14. I think I was 16 and Jason was 17. So yeah. Um, you know what year was it when you guys first started playing man i want to say it was uh 93 wow okay or 93 or 92 or 93 one of those one of those two is right in that period um 92 i believe but yeah it was man it was really intense but uh like i said we really didn't know what we we're doing other than just getting around and trying to outplay each other so how long did you guys play before you recorded that first demo? Not long at all, actually, um, because what we we were always very goal oriented, which actually helped us uh, as a band for a long time. But then, you know, ended up kind of causing some issues because we had goals, whereas, you know, other people may have been playing music just for the art of it. Well, we wanted to make something of it. So that helped us in, in you know, in the early going to to get real cohesive and get kind of like a uh, not a brand, but, you know, we, we, we had our thing, our own little business, you know, so we actually weren't doing it for the, uh, you know, just to, just to hang out and play and get girls. We were doing it to write music and, and release something. So that's what we did. When did you guys meet Chris? Chris, uh, actually was my friend from a long time ago. Um, he was in my art class in my I want to say my freshman year on, and then um, he kind of was just a uh, a guy that hung out uh, and hung around the band, our early embodiment band, um, as we were kind of just messing around and doing our thing, if I remember correctly. And then 
uh, one day we decided he just looked cool and that he should sing. And he did, and he did, so it was awesome. So it was in 1998 when you released Embrace the Eternal. That's your, your first LP. And right. It, you know, around that time, people were still listening to alternative music and pop on the radio. Um, right. What were you all listening to at the time that influenced the sound of Embrace the Eternal? Because it, it's uh, so brutal, and it sounds so sick yeah i can tell you um if we were listening to all different types of stuff i will say from the get-go um living sacrifice number one and we got that through jason linguist who who was like the mail order king he would find any obscure band back in the day and send off his five bucks and wait five months for a a tape to come (laughs) in the mail um back that's how we did it back in the day and so he was just getting these tapes from all over the place. I know he got like Living Sacrifice, he got Tourniquet, um, Mortification. Um, and this was this was my first um uh I guess experience in what you know was Christian death metal back in the day, or Christian metal even really. Um uh, we weren't too far removed from you know the hair metal days, so um, you know, if it would have been a couple years earlier, it would have been Petra, but that's you know <laughs> but that you know, so but you know, not to knock any of the living sacrifice guys and all, but you know, they're what they were doing was immensely heavier than uh, what other people were doing. But then there was also like Sepultura, Malevolent Creation, which went on to um, Suffocation, which you can't see I'm wearing a Suffocation hat right now, and and a bunch of other um, secular stuff like that, if you'll call it. Um, but really, our music was really all over the place back then. Pantera were really heavy on Pantera. Of course, um, as any Texas band would be. Sure. But uh, yeah, that's that's kind of how it all started. But then obviously, I know you're probably going to ask why we transitioned into what later embodiment was. Absolutely. Um, but that that came from the other end of uh, of our uh, situation where uh, where we loved um, we loved. Uh, I guess you call 80s music, pop music with Genesis and and stuff like that. We loved really well-written songs. Um, uh, Peter Gabriel, Genesis, uh, The Police, uh, and all that influenced a lot of the later embodiment writing because we wanted to write actual song-structured songs. Again, coming out of, of you know the metal side of what we like to do, we our, our love for music was kind of all over the place, and it, we reflected that as a band. So you would say that it wasn't necessarily an intentional move to uh, a lighter alternative sound. It was kind no, of no. Uh, it was it was okay. I, I would be lying if I said it wasn't intentional. So I'm not going to say that it wasn't intentional. What it was was more of an outpouring of what we we're listening to, because like you said earlier, when you when you looked at what we were doing in the context of of uh, you know 2001 2002 it's it fit right in with everything we were doing that six seven years earlier right it wasn't cool it wasn't popular and there were uh you know 12 people showing up to our shows so it got really old real quick playing this really intense music when everybody that sounded like uh you know corner deftones were packing places out so we were like we can't do that and that's when i guess we just started experimenting in you know, Andy is great at, at um, 
melodic riffs. He's great at writing, um, uh, I guess, resolving and, and, and just melody in general. He's a great guitar player riff wise, but he's great at writing melodies and because he's got these big fingers that can play these weird chord structures and all of his melodies. If you listen to his stuff is really, really, uh, you can tell he, he didn't learn to play guitar, you know, uh, you know, uh, do lessons. He just learned by sitting in his bedroom and, and messing around. So he definitely has a very unique sound. He's an, he's an incredible guitar player, no doubt. Sure. Since we're talking about the progression of your band from, uh, you know, the, the, almost like a death core, uh, death metal type sound, uh, moving to a softer alternative sound. What is the story of Chris leaving the band and how did you meet Sean? Man. Um, so I decided to, uh, 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 I guess uh, be nice on, on this interview because I've said some stuff before that, that came across really rough and it, it, and it's, and I, I'm not going to say that I'm going to cover things up. Just things didn't work out with Chris when it, especially when it came to us changing um, Chris, Chris kind of imploded whenever that happened. Rightfully so. I mean, if I, if, if we were a metal band and the guys came back and said, we want to be a jazz fusion band, can you play that? And I'd, I probably be like, yeah, I'll try. And I probably would have gone home, you know, to the woodshed and tried to do it. If I couldn't do it, it'd have been hard for me to be like, guys, I can't do it anymore. I'm sorry. But I think maybe that's kind of the position we may have put Chris in back in the day. Um, Although, you know, listening to some of the early embodiment stuff uh, with Sean, it would have been interesting to hear Chris's take on it. But unfortunately, we never really did because he kind of, without getting too into it, he kind of stopped showing up to practices and stuff like that. And it just got, it got stupid real quickly. And, and, you know, again, we had, we had our blinders on, we wanted to plow forward. Um, and at the time we felt like it'd be great to do that, you know, for the, for the greater good of the band when, you know, now I'm 42 years old and I'm thinking, man, I'd really like to have that friendship back. Um, that we lost or I lost over a stupid band, but, you know, usually, not a stupid band, you know what I'm saying. I know what you but mean. But usually, usually, um, you know, it, I've, I've, there's ten thousand other ways to, to, you know, lose a friendship, but to lose it over, you know, kicking a guy out of a band that's pretty, pretty dumb in in context now. But the yeah, same thing happened with Sean later on. Um, same exact thing. And then we, we did the famine with Chris, the same thing. I mean, it's like history repeated itself. So <laughs> It was about this time that I saw you guys for the first time because it was at the warehouse in Bartlesville. Oh, and, man. And yeah. you guys played with POD, Living Sacrifice, Squad 5-0, Project 86. This was a, a big show. And do you remember the show? That that show with POD is one of my favorites because because I'll tell you we 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 didn't know what to think. We never heard of Bartlesville. We ne- never heard anything about it. Um, POD. We just I guess played Cornerstone a year before with POD, and they were blowing up. And then Project eighty six was getting bigger, and um, of course Living Sacrifice are our heroes and everything else. So we didn't know what we were getting into, and we pulled into this small Oklahoma town. I think we I think. Uh, we may have been dodging, literally dodging tornadoes, yeah. go through Oklahoma City. Then we went up and I guess went a little bit northeast and then to Bartlesville and we got there and it was, uh, I, it was it, my memory is probably a little weird on it, but I swear there was a line of kids like 200 yards out the building oh, yeah. before we, when we got there and I was shocked. <laughs> 
and I was shocked at the venue. I was shocked at the reception and it just, it just seemed unreal. And, you know, that, again, that would, you know, POD took off after that big time. Um, and cause even, I, I want to say about a year before that, we played a show with POD in Arlington to about maybe 25 people at a weird little warehouse. It was us and POD and, and another band. And, um, you know, I know you remember probably because back in the day it wasn't, you know, five metal bands touring together. It was it was anybody that wanted to tour together would tour together. So you'd have POD and a death metal band like Embodiment, and then you'd have the Super you know, Yeah, it yeah. just didn't make sense, but it was really neat that way. Um, so, but it's you know things are different now, but it's it's pretty neat to have those memories of of how that all happened. So was that show Sean's first show with you all? I think it was, if it wasn't his first, it was, it was really close to it because we were scared to death. Um, but he did great. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, man, I, yeah. Bringing back those memories. He was, he, uh, I remember looking at the video. I still have video of that show. And I remember looking at the video and seeing his stage presence just impressed the crap out of me. Um, how he didn't, I know he was scared to death, but he didn't look like it. You know, and he, um, you know, he just he just had a bravado about him that I admired. And I still admire when you see the guy. He's just he's cool as crap. But, you know, that's Sean. <laughs> I just remember being blown away by how heavy you were, because uh, you if I remember correctly, you weren't playing any songs from the narrow scope of things at that point. Still, you were playing everything from Embrace the Eternal um, and. I just remember being uh, blown away by how heavy everything was and because I had never heard you up until that point. Um, and right. that was my introduction to embodiment. So uh, I, I fondly remember that show uh, because it was the beginning of uh, a love relationship for me with, uh, with a band that, uh, well, I don't want to be too much of a fanboy, but let's just say <laughs> that, uh, let's just say that I, I, it was the start of, uh, something, you know, that meant something big for me. And so, uh, I, I really cherish the experience of, of that show. And I would love to see the video of that. Cause I haven't seen video of that. I wonder if uh, anyone else has any video of that up on like YouTube. I haven't searched that up or anything. Maybe I think I posted some stuff on YouTube. I can send you a link to it. Uh, but we have that a, would be awesome. a lot of footage of that show. And it's funny because you tell me that you're reminding me that it was uh, about one of Sean's first shows. And you're and I was just thinking about that video. And you're probably right. So I think cool. I remember hearing that, um, you know, while I was in line, people were talking about embodiment. Oh, they have a new singer. We'll see if we like him or not. Uh, <laughs> so that's why that's why I thought that I wasn't 100 percent sure. But um, that was my memory is that it was probably Sean's first show or at least Sean's first show out um, out of Dallas or out of right. Fort Worth. Right. So um, how, how did you end up meeting Sean? Sean was funny. He was in a band called Within. Um, and we loved them. Uh, there were other bands that, that hung around in the, the Dallas Fort Worth area. Um, and they would either try to be like, uh, you know, you name it, whatever popular band was out at the time. But then there was Sean's band within, and they were just all super cool guys. Every one of them was. And I was actually, I wasn't a, a, a big fan of their music, um, cause they were just, kind of just you know not hardcore not even really metalcore it was just just uh just metal in particular i guess uh, and um 
I, I loved everybody in his band, his friends. They were great guys. But Sean, just there was something about him that, that I liked. And it, if I remember correctly, it was my idea. I told the guys, I really want this guy in the band. And I've heard him sing before because I thought I heard him in the break room of 412 a thousand years ago, this club in Fort Worth. I thought I heard him sing happy birthday to a girl. And I thought, my God, this guy can sing. He really can sing. And so I talked to the guys about it. And then uh, I think we had Sean out and sang. And and then we just went from there. Um, There wasn't even like a whole list of people that were looking to replace Chris. It was like, well, Chris is probably not going to do it anymore. Who do you want? And we're like, let's try Sean. And then so then we called Sean up. Um, And it it literally happened that quickly. Um, But unfortunately, you know, that made his band within go away. Uh, and then, like I said, it, you know, really hacks uh, Chris off. So, but uh, it was Sean. I mean, he was fantastic. He really was. So were you happy with the direction that you were going? Was that, you, you kind of mentioned that that was happening before Chris left. Had you written some of the songs for the narrow scope of things before Sean even joined? Yes, we, we wrote, we wrote probably most of the record before Sean joined. And I, but I specifically remember four or five songs in when we were really, really committed to, to the heavier direction or to the, to the more, um, the newer embodiment style direction, not heavier. It still had elements of being heavy. It just, it was heavy. Yeah. It just wasn't death metal. Right. So it was a, a different type of heavy, but in looking at, um, what we had written, we kind of crossed this point of no return where we're like, okay, we're going to finish writing this. And, you know, people are going to hate it. The label's going to be upset with us. Uh, we're going to get a new singer. Everything is going to be um, kind of thrown up in the air. But if we if we do it right, maybe everybody will like it. And so we had all these songs and we were just hoping that Sean could sing. And um, he did. And he did great. But the main thing I want to say about Sean is his songwriting. Um, lyri- his, uh, lyrically, the guy is is amazing even if you've never even liked our stuff if you looked at the lyric sheet and the words that sean wrote um i mean that's stuff that that people get tattooed on their bodies you know that's stuff that's memorable to me um that makes me like really reflect because he was really writing coming from you know the heart of where he was and where we were at the time um versus you know writing about uh you know just just superficial junk nothing that he wrote about was superficial um, he painted a picture with, with his lyrics is what I loved so much. Um, and it was one of the things about Chris too. I, I know Andy wrote most of the, the earlier lyrics for embodiment, the heavy stuff. Um, but Chris, you know, Chris nailed it whenever he was performing them, but Sean was a different animal. He wrote everything, um, you know, and, and, uh, some of it was a collaborative effort. Um, but he was, he was phenomenal as a lyricist. talked about club 412 um was that a place that you hung out a lot uh on your outside of being a musician like did you go there to see the shows a lot no i wish i did um uh but you know being doing the embodiment thing we were playing there 
God, it seemed like every other weekend, mm-hmm. even though it wasn't. I mean, it, you know, play probably play there once a month or so. Um, and then when we we go off and tour, when we come back through here, we would play there again. And um, we probably played there. I I bet probably thirty times, you know, over a, a couple of years. But it was a really massively important part of of uh, our band and where we had kind of our our uh, our following because we had a, a following out in a place called God's Place in Arlington um, when we first first started and we would literally have you know eight hundred almost a thousand people show up kids from the neighborhood and from that surrounding area and that's whenever we would play. Um, you know, living sacrifice and stave saker and stuff like that early 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 stuff um and then that place went away um i don't know if it got closed down or what happened so we really kind of didn't really have a, a whole bunch of options to play we well our band did we played you know deep Ellum and stuff like that back in the day um galaxy club and and 20 21st amendment uh and, and older metal clubs like that then uh but when we're in Fort Worth, we'd always play 412. Uh, that ended up being the new place that we we stayed at for almost the rest of the, like our home venue, so to speak. So we loved it. 412 was always really cool to me as a, a spectator because it had all those different rooms. They had a game room. They had a couple right. of lounges. Um, and the bands, it seemed like they would all be out hanging out with everyone. And it was always Absolutely. really cool and almost communal uh, in a way. So, it was. Yeah. I really enjoyed that venue a lot. I also wanted to ask, since we're talking about the narrow scope of things, what was your favorite song that you guys did off of the narrow scope of things? Um, man, that's you're you're killing me on that. Actually, <laughs> I listened to it today for a little bit. Um I'm going to uh sh- let's see here. I'm typing up the uh, the track list real quick because I wanted to be able to know what I'm talking about and not sure. name a song off a different album. <laughs> um, okay, so here you go. Um, obviously, One Less Addiction, that's the one that everybody liked. Winter Kiss was the first song we sent to the label, and they were not happy about it. I, they didn't know what to think <laughs> about it. So I like that. I like that song. Um, uh, Assembly Line Humans has got to be my favorite song off that um, album. Uh, cause it was, it was so heavy and I had a, a lot of, a big hand in arranging that song in the studio. Um, just, it just, it was just a song that, that I really, really loved. Uh, the drums sound killer on that song. And plus it was heavy because, you know, we had gotten so much hell from people for changing styles. Oh, you, you used to be heavy. I'm like, no, no, no. Listen to Listen to Assembly Line Humans. That's still heavy. It's just a different kind of heavy. <laughs> right. But then you go through most of those songs are still heavy. They're just a different kind of heavy. Yeah, that album was revolutionary for me when it came out. I was so stoked on that record. Um I think uh, Winter Kiss is still my favorite song from that record as well. (laughs) Interesting that that's the first one that you sent to the label. Um, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall whenever someone was listening to that. Well, I remember Barry Pointer, who who recorded it um, and and produced it, engineered it, the whole nine yards. He he 
he he had a really thick Arkansas accent. I'm talking thick. And he was just always like, man, I don't know what the label's going to think about this. <laughs> he was really stressing out about it because he had done um, he had done. Uh, 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 let's see. Did he do? Yeah, he did Embrace the Eternal. Mm-hmm. He did all of your then, stuff. Right. He did. He did Embrace the Eternal. So then but then, you know, here we are two years later coming in with this. And he's like, what did y'all do? And, <laughs> And he seemed really nervous about it. But then when he heard all of the songs together, he was just like, man, you guys have something really special, you know? And so then he started playing some stuff on it and started really, you know, throwing himself into it. Um, and, you know, I think we recorded that in like two and a half weeks, maybe. Wow. Um, but man, it, you know, he, uh, he didn't really change very much of anything. Really. That was up to Andy and I, as far as like kind of the, the real production of it and we still wanted the heavy parts to be heavy but we also wanted songs like winter kiss to, to pop you know which they did um you know and, and uh that was just a really important album for us too what was it like recording with barry pointer too oh my gosh it was it was like going to to, to summer camp <laughs> you know it's like just being in arkansas is a different it's a different vibe you would think it'd be close to, to Fort Worth, you know, where I'm from, but like vibe wise, but it's not, man. It's just way more laid back. Everybody is real chill. Um, and for us at the time, it was it was neat to to be, you know, our bands record full length albums in their bedrooms now. We, you know, to be able to go away for a couple of weeks to record something was a really neat luxury that we had at the time, thanks to, to Tooth and Nail and Solid State. Um it was a really, really neat thing to do. And Barry is like your instant best friend, you know? Um, uh, he was pivotal in a lot of the early bands and early recordings. Um, and, you know, from Living Sacrifice, obviously, he did everything they ever did, I believe. Um, he did a, the first Zayo record um, right after us, I believe, uh, and, and put out a bunch of stuff that had, um, you know, his, his own flavor. You know, he... He didn't have the best gear or the best anything, but he listened, you know, he didn't try to change anything that we did. Um, He listened to what we were doing as a band and was like, I guess we'll make that work. And, you know, then we would just record it. And, you know, you think you might want to try that again? We're like, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, he he was amazing. But I can't I cannot leave out. um, Jason Magnuson is a guy that nobody really talks about. He was Barry's right hand guy. Um, and he uh, was just amazing, uh, amazing as far as his ability to edit and, and uh, his presence in the studio. And I, you know, he, I think through the years when bands record, you know, you, you tend to recall the producer. But this this guy, um, he's assistant engineer is his title, but he's fantastic um, at what he did. So. Just want to shout out to Jason. He always left a signature sound, I believe, in the snare drum. The snare drum. <laughs> on, every time I listen to, uh, you, you know, one of your albums, or I can hear another album where the snare drum sounds a certain way, I know it's a Barry Pointer recording. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to sense the sarcasm in your voice, or if you're being honest, because I, I never liked Barry's snare sound, <laughs> um, and I, would, I, I would come in there with several different snare drums, trying to figure out. Is it his mic? Is it the way he mixes it down? What? Because I, I, I wanted a big, 
like just a, just a loud thud, a loud pop. But his snares were really warm all yeah. the time, and it just kind of faded in. But you know, it ended up working out really well um, towards the latter part of the embodiment stuff that we did. Uh, you know, warm a warm snare sound. But Barry's stuff never—it's um, hard to explain. Never really popped necessarily. You could tell it's a Barry record, but again, it's just the way he hears things. And um, you know, we did a. Uh, some stuff with um, Andreas Magnuson, no relation to Jason. Um, uh, but he, uh, you know, everything he does, like it, it, it's, it's like sharp and poppy and it, it's really, um, um, I don't know. It's just so tweaked out. Um, there's no warmth, warmth to it at all. And that's what, you know, and obviously that works for metal. And that's what we did for the famine with, with uh, um, Andreas Magnuson. But, Barry's a whole different guy. He's a rock rock guy. And you can tell, and again, if you listen to even even Living Sacrifice or the Zeo or anything like that, you can tell there's a warmness to the recordings. Mm-hmm. It's just his style, you know, and it and it bled into the drums. The guitars were still huge. The bass wasn't that prevalent, but um um, you know, he never he never let, you know, anything really get in the way of the recording. It was just a really warm recording and i like that's what i like about it. you got to turn it up a little bit more yeah uh, it's but maybe that but maybe that had more to do with mastering i don't know maybe tooth and nail wasn't spending enough money on mastering back <laughs> in the day i don't know yeah it's such a unique sound and and you can definitely tell whenever it's one of his recordings due to that snare drum and i was i was really excited to ask you about that because uh as a drummer i'm sure you had an opinion about that about that sound um well because you know what he would do I'll, I'll tell you just real quick what he'll do is every time we'd walk in if I remember correctly, I went in there with a really nice drum kit. We go in there and start playing. He go, "Hey, pull that snare off. Use mine." <laughs> and, and he would do it every time we record. Hey, try try this one. And he would slap it on there, and I'd be like, "Okay," you know. But it, I think it happened every time. I probably got pissed about it. But then yeah, I just ended up trusting him. Yeah. So yeah. Well, I think you did the right thing because it's got a really great sound, one that I wouldn't want changed at all because of, of uh, how unique it is and how, how, how different it is. You didn't sound like everyone else. It was warm. Cool. We'll, we'll call cool. it warm. That's a nice way to say it. <laughs> so it wasn't even a year after you put out the narrow scope of things that you started recording Hold Your Breath, right? Yes. Tell me a little bit about recording that record. Um, uh, we, we, uh, okay. Well, let's, okay. This is what happened. So we, uh, we did the Neuroscope of things. We did some touring. We realized, um, you know, in the day we're thinking, oh, we're not being supported. This is not being supported. You know, the records aren't in the stores. We're not being supported. We didn't realize that uh, all of the industry was changing around that time. Um, Everything was changing. Uh, we didn't know that, you know, 10 years later, there wouldn't even be a, a music industry, so, uh, practically. Um, so I could I could see why the labels were, you know, less reluctant, to, uh, real reluctant to, to dump a bunch of money into tour support and stuff like that. Uh, so we kind of, I think, took it on the chin and decided, well, let's just, let's just write all these albums and get through our contract. Now, not necessarily writing albums to get out of a contract, but writing albums because we love writing, writing albums. It was easy and it was fun. Um, touring sucked. You know, it, you went broke on the road. If you were lucky, you, you broke even. So we thought, well, let's just, 
you know, let's just go ahead and record and keep writing. So we came home and we just, we wrote and wrote and wrote and, um, uh, you know, wrote Hold Your Breath. And that is one of my favorite albums as well. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, the songs on that album are a lot different because uh, that marks the departure of Sean screaming. Um, and Right. But there's still lots of heavy elements to that album, especially with uh, your drumming, um, you know, the riffs that are still being played on a seven string guitar. Um, right. You know, definitely a, a heavy album, but from a more pop sensibility, I think. Right. Yeah. Right. It's such a unique album because you don't often hear um, somebody, you know, crooning over a seven string heavy riff, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's such a great album. Your drumming, speaking of that album, your drumming is extremely unique in that you include these incredible syncopated fills in your songs that like really stand out. Um, one in particular that I'm, I'm thinking of is in the song Moving On, which is the ninth yes. track of that album. There's like right. this kind of breakdown where you do uh, um, like a, a drum roll and then it builds up to this really cool syncopated drum thing that you do. I just want to know how you come up with those parts. Hey, and I here's the deal yeah. on, on all including everything on on hold your breath and this you still got to understand I'm still living under the 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 um, pressure of going from like this this guy I guess that was known for playing, you know, these really intense stuff and being faster than anybody whatever and like all the crazy stuff that I used to do. I still felt like I had a huge chip on my shoulder to never play a 4/4 beat. That I had a chip on my shoulder to always try to come up with something out of the box to what Andy was writing. And that did give us a, a, a sound that was different. And I even remember when we did, we did, um, we demoed a lot of the stuff for Songs of the Living with the producer for, um, for Universal when we did a demo deal with them. And one of the first things he did was strip me down to four four on every, every song. Really, and it, destro it destroyed everything. Like I did it because he wanted me to, but it literally destroyed the vibe of every song that we wrote on "Song for the Living." Um, and I don't, I don't. I, one of the guys might have a copy of that the demo we did with with Universal, but it was. I didn't want to keep any of it. It was disgusting. It, it was bad, and it was what I had spent the whole 12 years prior to that trying not to do. Um, but he was all about writing a, a good song and I got it. We wrote some great songs, but you know, I always felt like the drums could do more than just keep time. Um, I grew up, you know, grew up, but I was a big fan of listening to like Carter Buford from um, Dave Matthews band and guys that sometimes overplayed quite a bit, but then again, listening to all the death metal I used to listen to, those guys were filling in every ounce of space they could with a, with a, a note or, or a fill or something. And that always appealed to me. So I just took that into the, the, the pop sensibilities of what we were writing, the rock, I guess not pop, but the right. pop rock type style, stuff that we were writing, the real melodic, melodic rock stuff. And what it allowed me to do is, is like I said, and a lot of that is Andy too, because he would, he left me a lot of space, even though the dude is like, a, could play all crazy. He left me a lot of room to do a lot of things I wanted to do. 
Um, but that's that's basically the chip on my shoulder is what you're listening to is me trying to feel like I was still a, a, a really, um, a, I guess, a capable drummer, just not somebody that is just going to go in there and fill in and, and you just do two, four stuff and four, four and, you know, high five at the end of the day. I wanted to, I wanted, okay, and I can back up a little bit too. When we did the embodiment stuff, sometimes there would be more people behind the stage by me watching what I was doing than there was on the front of the stage. I thought that was awesome. And I wanted to keep that kind of a vibe on the latter stuff because I wanted to be able to, to show that you could do all kinds of cool things on drums. If you have a sense of time and a sense of where to put a beat. Um, I listen to, even if you listen to a lot of pop stuff, uh, not pop, but like, uh, late eighties stuff, early nineties stuff, like Peter Gabriel, one of his drummers, Manu Cache, um, you, you would hear him and I would hear him and he'd blow me away because he's putting notes on beats that should not exist but it works. Um, and if you listen to a song like In Your Eyes, one of Peter Gabriel's favorite songs, his best songs, listen to the drums p particularly on how he plays, and he's putting cymbal hits on the weirdest spots, snare hits and tom fills, just in really odd spots. And that's what I kind of wanted to do with our stuff is make everything kind of odd like that. And I didn't do it exactly the way I wanted to, but it came out being what it is. And, and now, you know, now I love it. So... Well, what song off of Hold Your Breath would you say is your favorite? Um, almost definitely Moving On. Heaven and the Letter Bomb, obviously, is, again, because that was a, a heavy song. Um, and Set the Stage seemed to me to be like the marquee song on that album, um, along with, you know, Yours Truly, the, the first song. Uh, so I know that doesn't answer your question. I got like five of them that I love on that. It's all good, man. My favorite one from that album is Belly Up. It's such a good yes. song. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I you could actually I turned that one up really loud in my car today. I'm not ashamed to say because I did. I, I I played it. I just got through listening to Yours Truly, then Belly Up was the second track, and I heard that guitar part, that guitar intro. I was like, oh my gosh, okay, it's we great. Do that it's great. I love it. I you do something in the in the verses to that song with your drums, and I'm not a drummer, so I don't know the technical name for it. But it's almost like you're you're keeping a beat, and then all of a sudden you kind of reverse it. So it's like, yeah, no, absolutely. I, yeah. That's what I do. Yeah. yeah, I have no idea what that's called, but it's so cool. It's so cool how you do that. I, I have awesome. no idea how you come up with that stuff, but uh, but it does get noticed. So it's it's incredible, man. wasn't long after that album came out at all that you guys started recording songs for the living because uh it couldn't have been yep. a year because i think it was about a year after that that i saw you guys at galaxy club and you gave me that demo for songs for the living yeah <laughs> yeah so so what we'd done after that again so that was um that was the end of our contract hold your breath was and we were excited and that's why universal got involved um scooped us up right away signed a demo deal and we're flying us back and forth and we, you know, there's a lot of things that went on behind the scenes that people didn't realize with embodiment um, that we were going to really do something really awesome. So we thought, um, and uh, our last, um, our last uh, showcase 
was for a lot of the big wigs that were going to be up at uh, for Universal and for our our management company that we were signing with Concrete Management, or not Concrete. At the time, it was an offshoot of Concrete that that's um, I can't remember the name of it, but based on New York City. And so we were up there. We played a demo, uh, like a showcase, and um, it went okay. I wasn't wasn't really worried. It went okay. We were still in the process of, of recording the, the demo for Universal. So everything was kind of going and moving. And then uh, September 11th happened. Oh, yeah. And that changed everything for everybody. Um, like, I guess it was about two weeks later after we got back from New York that it happened. And I mean, life changed for everybody. And especially for, um, for our band, it was pretty much the end of the road for uh, I think the music industry for sure, that's when it really started imploding. Um, I know there were shakeups on all the record labels and uh, you know, just everything was different after that. And uh, uh, we decided to, to, or I decided to really kind of back away after that because Universal started falling apart um, and then they were passing on, they wanted to keep extending, you know, these demo deals which at the time are, we weren't interested in and uh, nobody was really interested in because we thought if we're good enough, sign us. If we're right. not, just let us let us go do something else. But what was going to happen is we're going to record all this demo stuff and they would own it. We wouldn't be able to use it, So, which is exactly what happened. So then we left them um, and uh, re-recorded Songs for the Living, which is what you got. Yeah. And that is probably my favorite rock album of all time uh, of everything that we did that one. I have, I get like a, a real sentimental about that album because uh, even the majority of embodiment fans don't even know that album exists because it's not really anywhere. Um, and I left the band right after we recorded that. And uh, the Andy and them went off and, and uh, I guess sold the rights to a, another record label. They went defunct and that album went away. XL so, Records? Yes, XL yeah. or XS or something, something like, like that. Something like that, yeah. Um, and as a matter of fact, I'm actually, I was I was trying to track down, uh, I guess, Mikey Bridges or, or whoever um, uh, owned their recording or was managing the recording at the time uh, to try to see what's what's going on with that because that record needs to be heard. It's um, amazing. You know? my Listen, so of course I shared that with my friends in, in the car, right? So I would get in the car and say, listen to this. I got the new embodiment. <laughs> and I'd put it on and they'd be blown away. And in fact, that album came out right before like the big uh, – because heavy music really kind of stopped being as popular a little bit after that. And it was all right. about, um, that sound and you guys had right. it early. Um, you, you guys really were at the forefront of forefront of something there. And that record to this day still remains one of my top 20 favorite records of all time. And you're right. Hardly anybody knows about it, but it's hardly incredible. anybody. Yeah. And I, I, you know, when you, and this, and this is where Sean, vocally lyrically um i i get sentimental about the album but i really thinking about the way what sean put into the lyrics of that album is uh is beyond anything i could i could ever expected he could have wrote all kinds of stuff in there just to you know just to go over really good music it'd have been great 
But when you listen to the lyrics of what Sean wrote and what he was writing about, it was pretty profound stuff. Um, especially you listen to um, White Flag is my favorite song uh, off of that album. And, and it's really silly because there's about seven or eight of them that are, in my opinion, really, really good. But White Flag um, really, to me, um, I guess uh, typified where we were as a band at that point. Uh, and it, this, that was it. This is this is as good as we can do. And ironically, that was pretty much it for the band. <laughs> so. It just everything changed after that and i'm not talking like cynically but it, everything got cynical after but it really literally changed um you know and i don't know i think everybody that was in you know in the industry stayed in the industry and did well it just after that it just seemed like everything contracted so quickly there was no room for a band like us to to be um coddled taken care of and developed and and um you know, advanced. There was just no room for us anymore Yeah. when it came to that. And I was okay with it. The guys, I don't think were, because they continued touring relentlessly for almost three years, um, doing 200 some odd dates a year. And my, my heart broke for them a lot of times because I knew how hard it must have been for them and their families and, and what they were trying to do. Um, but it, it, you know, I, for some reason, I've, I've got a, an ability to look at something and see it whenever it, it's pretty much done. And, you know, as hard as it would be just to walk away from, I, I can kind of sense when it's time to do that. Uh, and that's what happened with, with embodiment. Unfortunately, I just was, I just could see there was a window and, and that window, you know, was, was shut, you know, after, after 2001. So yeah. So Derek was a guitar player for embodiment, but, uh, it was, you know, right after you quit that he actually switched over to drums. How did you feel about that? I, I loved it actually, because the funny thing about it is, 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 um, that guy was horrifically talented, um, on any level. He was super, he couldn't sing, but he was super, <laughs> super, super duper talented. Um, and probably one of the coolest guys you'll ever meet because he's, He's so, uh, man, it's so hard to explain Derek. People don't, people always think that like Derek is some, some like, he's so odd, but he's, he's, he's somebody that you want to root for because he's just, uh, there's just, there's really no agenda with him. He just loves to play music. And like, he was so stinking good that, you know, he would sit there. We would argue all the time. We'd argue all the time about, um, cause he was a big fan of, of embodiment before he joined the band. And so he would be talking about, and he, he had another band. I, we would used to make fun of his other band. Okay. <laughs> here's the deal. Here's the deal. I'll, I'll say this. He was like our little brother and we picked on him relentlessly. And I think, I think a lot of it's because we knew how talented he was and it was a little intimidating because he could play all my drum parts and he could play all of Andy's guitar parts and he could probably do whatever else he put his mind to. Um, and uh, he was a perfect, perfect fit after I left. Um, 
but you know he's he's Derek. You'd have to know him to 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 know that it was uh, it was probably a lot of fun. But at the end of the day, he's still Derek. He's still like our little brother. But uh, I can't. I don't know what the guy's up to now. He's the only one. I I have no idea. Um, but yeah, you know, I I remember real quick. I remember uh, we're on the road, and he decided that Derek was just wasn't going to be good enough for his name. So he wanted to be called stone. I kid you not. <laughs> so we called him stone and he wasn't being, he wasn't being stupid about it. He was being right. serious. Yeah. And that's a, that's the kind of guy he was. He was really thinking about this kind of stuff. Like, well, maybe if I call myself stone, you know, and maybe if I, you know, and he just, he just had these weird, weird quirks about him that people would look at him and go, you're an idiot. And it's not that he's just really, had these really weird quirks. He was a single, uh, only child, you know, coddled. Like, I don't even think he went to school. I think he, his parents homeschooled him and he played music. He played music 10 hours a day and he just got phenomenal at everything he did. But he was so awkward in, in a lot of these weird social things that he would do. But he, he was very childlike in his perception of the music industry and, you know, all you got to do is write great songs and play your play your heart out, and and it'll happen, won't it? And you're like, mm, yeah, okay, but <laughs> there's a little bit more to it than that. Now that you're um, mentioning it, I think I do remember <laughs> reading Stone as one of the members of Embodiment. Oh on yeah, one of the albums. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm sure of it. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. <laughs> I, I do remember the first time I saw him play as the drummer for Embodiment, though, uh, was at Cornerstone 2003. So I'm guessing you quit the band at around 2002, or was it 2003? Uh, it, I think it was early 2002. Um, and yeah, and I, or it may have been early 2003. I'm not sure. I knew it was before Cornerstone because I felt bad about it. Um, but I, I'm again, it's one of the situations where I knew me being in that band even five minutes longer wasn't going to be helpful for anybody. Um, and if they were going to continue, they needed to do something quick. So that's why Derek being in was actually a really big blessing for them to kind of keep pushing, you know, um, because had, you know, had they really, you know, that all the touring and all that paid off, it would have been because they had somebody like Derek to step in and, and keep everything kind of, you know, moving forward. Um, it's just unfortunate, like I said, it's just the way things kind of fall. It just, it didn't, I think they kind of started uh, uh, closing shop a couple of years after I left. But, uh, um, but at the time though, I will say though, they, they were almost at the peak of, of what embodiment was doing. You know, it was, it was a really good time for them. I just don't think it, I think it had a, an expiration date and they knew it and then you know they just stopped playing after that. They recorded one more EP after you left the band. What do you think about those songs? I laugh about those songs all the time with Andy because um, we'll start talking about stuff. Somebody will bring that up and I'll say, that's not Embodiment. And they'll look at me. They'll look at me kind of funny. Like, what do you mean? I'm like, no, no. Embodiment recorded like four albums and they did, we didn't do any EPs. And they'll look at me kind of funny. And I'm actually, I'm kidding. You know, sure. I don't, 
it's like those songs to me are like somebody else's kids like hey you know they're cool i but i don't have that emotional attachment to them sure i know the i know jason and, and and andy and them love those songs too and when you hear them they still have the same embodiment like flavor which is amazing and they're great songs it's just i it's always been a running joke with me that that's not embodiment you know <laughs> just and i do it more to make andy mad and, and he 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 takes the bait every time you know and so it's yeah. kind of funny i i actually really love that ep as well um i think it's great i think it's fantastic um and i really really wish that they had made a, a full length out of songs like that, but uh, we'll never know, I guess. Um, right. <laughs> so how long after Embodiment folded, did you, uh, Andy and Chris start the famine? Uh, that was in 2007. I want to say it was about four or five years. Uh, and I ran into Andy at a Home Depot uh, in Arlington. And I was like, man, what you been up to? Because after that, uh, Andy, Andy kind of went dark, you know, for a couple of years after embodiment quit and we didn't talk. We didn't, we didn't talk at all, period. Uh, we just kind of were just living our lives. He was kind of recouping, um, you know, cause again, being on the road as much as they were, you, 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 it's hard to maintain. So I, I think you had to dig himself out of some holes. And at the time, you know, things were going really, really well for me. Um, and I was just working and doing my thing and, and playing my recording my own stuff too. Um, but then I bumped into Andy and then that's when it just, you know, it just happened again. We're just laughing and laughing about how crappy the metal was these days and, mm -hmm. and everything. And, you know, and then next thing you know, one thing led to another. And I guess, I don't know when or where the moment was that we got together, but we started playing again. And of course we can't do anything to just do it. We have to do it with a purpose. And even to this day, Andy will tell you that I don't want to play with Mark again because I know what happens when I do, you know, every, everything goes to hell and, and we start recording albums and planning tours. That's what happens. And it's just, you know, in our forties is I don't want to be that guy. So. Yeah. <laughs> was it like playing heavier music again i loved it i i still love it um i don't play it so much anymore i listen to it uh, but my my tastes have changed a lot but my love for for all that music is just it it'll never end because it's just it's something i love now we i don't don't get me wrong i don't go around listening to embodiment and famine stuff all the time and you know we listen to uh i listen to everything but um Whenever you contact me the other day, I pulled the stuff out and I just I absolutely adore it. I adore that heavy style of music um, and because it, it gives me a, a, a really kind of a neat context for where music is right now. Um, uh, or not a context, like almost a juxtaposition as to how when we were writing stuff, it was you you had to really think about what you're writing. You had to really think about the way it was going to sound and the recording and its position on, on an album, um, how it was going to fit in a set. And I just, you know, it's, it's, I'm sure it's old timers disease. I, now I listen to new music and new metal and I just don't get it. Yeah. I don't flat get it. Um, I can, yeah, I can even listen to, to, you know, pop music in contrast to, to 
you know, classic music like Journey and Boston. I don't get pop music anymore. It's it's all the stuff doesn't make sense to me. There is stuff out there. I'm a huge Radiohead fan. Obviously, oh, there's man. a lot of um, uh, Tom York. There's a, a bunch of wonderful stuff of theirs that I'm I'll always be a fan of. Um, uh, I'm Ray Lamontagne. Um, uh, let's see, I'm trying to look at my my Spotify list. I, I even you know I saw Kanye. I just think maybe the access to to you know I think uh, efficiency and um um perfection is great on a bunch of things but whenever you plug efficiency and perfection into music it takes the soul out of a lot of of what you hear i think that's what my ears hear is is stuff that is literally tracked and cranked out in a day um and i'm not i really am not trying to belittle a lot of these people some people are just fascinating stuff on their home systems i have a home system i don't even touch it um but uh, I just, I just think there's part of the art is lost, you yeah. know, in, in, in songwriting and stuff like that. And, um, there's something but, about five sweaty dudes in a room hashing out know, a song together. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So what was the project that you started after the famine? So after the famine, I recorded my own, it's like a five song EP. I did that myself. It's just, completely just a one-off thing and wrote some songs it was good stuff uh and then um started recording with a band called constant seas um constant seas is uh phenomenal in what they do um excuse me they are like it's it's almost like my two loves of like i look i was gonna say earlier i listen to a lot of classical music all the time um, I'm not a nerd about it. I, I couldn't tell you like my top 25 favorite composers or nothing. I just like the vibe of it. Um, and uh, so you take what um, classical music has and what you know, post-rock has and you add John Romero, who, who uh, is kind of our principal songwriter. He he's so he's the best at melody. I play with a lot of good guitar players. This guy's the best at writing melody that I've ever heard. If you listen to anything Constant Seas, um, if you wait for three minutes, um, John's gonna gonna put tears in your eyes with his melodies, and it's what he does. It's phenomenal. I thought it was a one-off thing, but then we started writing a bunch of material, and this guy, I don't know where he gets it from. It's like Andy. Yeah, I didn't know where he got his riffs from. I really had no idea where he got his stuff from. But John Romero is the same way. I don't know where the guy gets it from. Um, but his the way he deals with melody and chord progression, um, it's 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 like explosions in the sky on on crack. I, I can't even handle it. Like listening to those songs even you know tear me up. And I'm not an emotional guy in that aspect. I just understand how amazing this this guy's songwriting is, and how lucky I am to play music with these guys is really awesome. Are you still involved with Constant Seas? Yes, actually, we've got tons and tons of stuff written. Um, it's just we're all so busy, and I know that's so typical to say, but we're all so busy with our own lives. And John um, plays bass for United Pursuit, and so he's touring all the time. Uh, and uh, you know, I run my business, and Sean teaches, and Daniel lives, you know, all around the state. So we don't really have a whole lot of time to to do a lot of stuff. But we've literally it's taken us almost four 
years to write this last album. Oh wow! And and I'm not even kidding. It's there's some of this. One of the tracks on it is about 13 and a half minutes long. Probably one of the favorite my favorite things I've ever been a part of. Um, but all the tracks are like that. They're real scenescape, real theatrical. Um, and I, I, we, we demoed a bunch of the stuff out and a lot of people have heard constancies and familiar with the earlier stuff think that it's, uh, you know, uh, really, really, uh, beautiful melodic music. Some of the stuff is massively heavy, massively, massively heavy. Um, and, um, it, it's, it's something that people that have seen us play live and people have heard it, it's it's different and that's what i love about it it's what i loved about embodiments what i loved about the famine it all was different in its own way and i somehow stumbled upon these guys through through twitter their guitar player sean messaged me and asked if i'd be interested and i was like uh send me something and it was like one of those one in a million things you know people have sent me stuff before and it's it's it is what it is but then i heard this guy's stuff and i was like oh my god are you kidding me what is this it has no lyrics, no vocals. Um, it's just, it's you have to paint a picture and draw emotion out of instruments. Period. That's that's what Constant Seas is, and it's it's amazing stuff. I I can't I can't um, oversell it enough. It's really really good stuff. And the new stuff what we're doing is is going to be even even uh, it's pretty fascinating. I will say. So where can people listen to the EP that you wrote by yourself and Constant Seas? Um, I've got the EP stuff. Um, it's uh, it's on Bandcamp. Uh, the band name was under was Lowest, was L-H-O-I-S-T on Bandcamp. But that's all stuff written and recorded by me. Um, I did the vocals, drums, guitar, bass, whole nine yards. Um, the Constant Seas stuff, I know we have some stuff on YouTube. And we got stuff that's, like I said, will be coming up pretty soon. Um, I say soon, I really don't know because it's just you know a matter of of figuring out how to to be get this stuff recorded. Because again, I mean, you, we have um, not theatrical in the sense of like uh, uh, you know uh, Alice Cooper, but theatrical in the sense of like the music. There's so much, so many components to it. Um, that it's, you know, if you looked at my drum kit, it literally is theatrical. It's, it's massive. Um, and I've got, everything's oversized. I've got a ginormous kick drum. I've got a, a, a 50 inch bass drum, um, concert bass drum and all my cymbal. I got a 24 inch ride stuff that I wouldn't even have played like in my metal days because it was, it would have been so loud, but this is kind of what we, you know, what we do. Um, uh, in just the last point on constant seas, it gets louder, um, than anything I ever did with embodiment. It gets louder and heavier and fast, heavier than anything I did with the famine. And I know it sounds like I'm, I'm like clickbaiting you, but I'm not it's <laughs> such, such good stuff. I cannot, I cannot tell you enough. Um, but it's good stuff. That's, that's where we're headed. And then finally, I want to leave this out. I recorded some amazing stuff with my wife. Um, she is a phenomenal vocalist and we have this weird love for almost, I'm not going to say folksy country music because it's not that. Um, and, but it's, it is really well-written. Um, just, I, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. I got to send you a link to a couple songs. 
you're going to hear it and go, what is this? And it's, <laughs> it's, it's just my wife and I, I'm playing guitar and I play all the instruments on it, obviously. And, um, we just wrote some beautiful music and she's, she's, a kind of a kindred spirit with music with me. Um, but I'll send you, well, where can people hear that at that? That is unreleased. I've got that okay. stuff on, I got that stuff on some of it on YouTube. Um, but I, I can send you a link to that stuff yeah, too. I'd uh, love to hear it. Project. It is, it's unbelievable. And, uh, um, you know, that's, that's, that's my whole musical landscape. So, so I've got, uh, one last question for you. Um, and then I don't want to take up too much of your time, but what, no do, problem. what, what do you miss most about those days of playing with embodiment? Um, I would say the, the camaraderie with the guys, you know, when you're, when you're living and playing, and when you have music being that that big of a part of your life, um, it doesn't really leave a whole lot of room for other stuff. So um, that tends to be your your life and your focus. And and I was really okay with that for a long a long time. And um, it just gives your your life a different flavor. Um, you know, not that you know having mortgages and car payments and kids and stuff is bad by any means. It's it's a whole different flavor of my life that I love. But that is definitely um, a a different flavor and a different time that I just cherish big time. Because I even also after uh, embodiment, I or after the famine, I decided I wanted to to be a session player. So I did a bunch of session work, and it, it didn't have the right flavor. So I stopped doing all that as well. And I realized that the camaraderie, playing with Andy, playing with Chris, Sean, Jason, Derek. Um, uh, and, and James and Kevin and, and all those guys. Um, that's, that's what I really miss the most about. It. That's what I love the most about it is just that time, you know, cause it wasn't just about writing, writing songs. It was about spending time with friends. And that's the thing I miss the most about it. Well, dude, I, you know, if, if you're still in contact with the embodiment guys, it would mean a lot to me if you would just let them know that, uh, an old fan still, uh, gets brought tons of joy from listening to them and that, them Great. being musicians uh, meant a lot to someone uh, and still does. So, and that includes you, of course. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. This has been uh, almost like a dream come true for me uh, to get to Fantastic. actually talk to you about this. And so I certainly appreciate you doing that. Well, I appreciate you too, man. I really, uh, uh, just, I love the opportunity to just talk about, you know, all this and, and uh, cause it was a wonderful time and it's, it makes me feel good to know it was a wonderful time for other people too. This is Seth, and I've got some great news. Do you ever wish there was an easy and affordable way for you to get your finances in order? Luckily, I know just the guy you can talk to. Brian from BoundlessFinancialSolutions.com helped me set up a budget, learn how to invest my money, and he even helped me understand my retirement. And they don't just work well with individuals. They work with businesses and nonprofits as well. What's awesome is is they won't ever cold call you or spam your email. You tell them your needs, hopes, and dreams, and they will provide you with their best options at your convenience. Listeners of Fade to Gray can call 413-977-9967 and ask for Brian, or you can email him directly at brian at bfs-team.com. And that's Brian spelled B-R-I-A-N. And mention the podcast to receive a free consultation. That's hundreds of dollars in value. Services are available where licensed. Look, 
you have no excuse not to get your finances in order. Visit BoundlessFinancialSolutions.com and let them remove your financial fears. All right, guys, that wraps up this vaulted episode of Fade to Gray. Man, could Mark Garza be any more of a badass? I highly recommend you go check out his new band, Constant Seas. You'll be very glad you did. Also, make sure to go to FadeToGrayPodcast.com and follow us on social media. I'll see you next time on the Fade to Gray Podcast.